Chapter 7 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 A Desert Ride, Seven Palms to Thousand Palm Canyon. My plan on starting had been to make the first day's march a few miles longer and to camp at the next water beyond Seven Palms. This spot, known somewhat uncouthly as Two Bunch Palms, now became an easy objective for the second day. For one's marches in the desert country are figured from water to water, be the distance little or great. The wind had somewhat lessened by morning, gathering breath for the next attack. So I lay at middling ease for an hour, interested in the morning business of the birds that made the grove a literal aviary. The matted heads of the palms, with their dead hanging fans, made the snuggest of roosts, and was as full of small sleepers as a boarding-school dormitory. These now came bursting out in twos and threes, linnets, sparrows, finches, buntings, totaling scores within an enthusiasm for breakfast that I soon found infectious. They had the weather gauge of me there, however, for even in the best sheltered corner it was hard to keep fire enough together to boil my billy of tea. A few swallows were racing about, like little incarnations of joy. A prospector, who is a frequent camper here, had told me that they built their nests against the smooth bowls of the palms, and I looked, but without success, for this example of the skill of the jolly little masons. Kawia showed more than his usual alacrity when I led him in to be saddled, and we took our way again northward. There was no trail, but none was needed, for after a mile or two we came in sight of the two palms group, conspicuous objects against the light ochre of the foothills. In recent years a few land-hungry settlers have come into this region, and are engaged in what seems to my judgment pathetic attempts at farming. Lack of water is, of course, the first obstacle, and almost certainly a fatal one. Surface water, sufficient for household use, is easily got in most parts, but this may be counted a misfortune since it merely makes possible a losing fight. Next stands the poor quality of the soil, which, with the exception of a patch here and there, is much too light to produce crops, except of one or two kinds that could only succeed by means of copious irrigation. It is possible that wells sunk to a sufficient depth would yield a good supply. But there the checkmate comes in. It is the poor man who clutches at poor land, better being beyond his means, a truism that has special point in this state of booms and fantastic valuations. While, per contra, the sole chance of productiveness with such land lies in heavy initial outlay for securing water. It is the tribe of scatter alone, I fear, that realizes profits from these desirable acreages, and his neatly baited trap is ever to the fore in the advertising columns of California newspapers. It would be an act of both mercy and statesmanship for the government to withdraw from entry these delusive tracts, whose very poverty makes their fascination for the impecunious at least until official experiment has shown whether they can ever be made to repay cultivation. Nearing two bunch, for brevity the third syllable is dropped in common usage, I came upon the tiny store that serves this ungrateful land. Here a young Englishwoman was wrestling with fate, 
struggling to make ends meet by merchandising on the microscopic scale. Her clients are as varied as they are few. Indians, cowboys, prospectors, chance travelers like myself, and such other unconventional folk as are content to seek health, wealth, or prosperity under circumstances that most people would think intolerable. For example, this young woman, far from Amazonian in physique, for lack of a well, fetches her water day by day per burrow from a mile away, herself going on foot, and it is along no shady lane or boulevard either. I took a new view of chickens when I heard her speak bitterly of their heavy demands for liquid, and felt respectful sympathy when a scatterbrained young rooster upset the water pan. The two bunches of palms that give the place its name grow near together on a little bluff, where the level desert breaks to the foothills of the San Bernardinos. A spring of good water issues below the smaller group, and here I made camp. A settler has built a small cabin above the spring, and as he was absent, I made his house my windbreak. On my first visit here, some years before, I found an old scarecrow of a fellow in possession, living in a kind of burrow or dugout. A more Caruso-like object I never expected to meet, weird as many of these desert rats are to view. He could not be said to be clad, but antique rags were hung about him, and he wore a scrap of debris on his head under the delusion that it was a hat. His hair was snow-white, long and plentiful, his skin like that of a well-roasted fowl, and his eyes were bright and very blue. The blue eyes gave an infantile touch, and somehow half prepared me for his proud announcement that he was a poet. What more he was, or had been, I never fully knew, though I learned that he had known such spheres of life as a teamster, preacher, prospector, with others perhaps less blameless. Once only I got a taste of his poetic quality, but of that all I recall is a frequent loud roar of, Oh, Israel! A noticeable thing on the desert, whenever one is in the neighborhood of water, is the quantity of broken pottery that meets the eye. About seven palms the ground is littered with fragments in many places, and a number of fine, unbroken specimens have been found by the cowboy settler. Here again broken shards are plentiful, and I have often been surprised at meeting these evidences of bygone populations in the most unlikely places. The pottery of the common red sort, but sometimes decorated with colored designs, is so light that the fragments remain on the surface not buried by the wind. It was the custom of these desert Indians to burn the bodies of their dead and bury the ashes in a jar or oya, often along with such articles as baskets, stone or bone implements, and beads. Excavation in these places of old habitation often yields interesting treasure trove. Two Bunch Palms has one of the finest outlooks on the whole desert. On the west, Mount San Jacinto stands near at hand in gray severity of granite, with many a league-long buttress, gallery, precipice, chasm, and livid avalanche scar. From the vast apron of Chino Canyon that casts its burden on the desert floor up to the sky-piercing splintery crag and high-hung glimmer of snow. The topmost cliffs have a fine cathedral look with their fretted coins and dark-niched brooding pines. Separated from the northern spurs of San Jacinto by the San Gregorio Pass, 
rises another magnificent mountain, San Bernardino. With its height of 11,485 feet, it slightly overtops San Jacinto, but being rather more distant, it makes from here a less majestic, though not less beautiful, impression. The twin mountains stand like portals for the traveler's gateway to the fertile coast, the western ocean, and the new old world of the Orient. When, in winter and spring, they are hooded with snow, they make a memorable sight, and when a ruddy sunrise sets them aflame, they seem torches, lighthouses of a continent, beacons of the old westward march. At evening, I climbed a hill for a sunset view. A curtain of murky gold hung over all the west. The sun had set cloudless behind the pass. In clear silhouette, the mountains cut the glow, all their ruggedness of contour lost in shadow, leaving only peaceful line and quiet color to charm the eye. Near at hand, the palms pointed upward with a gesture of tranquil hope. The western gold grew duskier. The world seemed dying, life passing again into its first unity. It was such a desert hill as this, I thought, that was once the favorite haunt of the Son of God. Often he must have taken joy, like me, in the full, calm glory of the evening star. Forage for Cahuilla was limited to burrow-weed and a scant picking of galleta grass that stand by the desert horse. But I had brought a little barley for emergencies, and Indian frugality had to make up the balance. The breeze was broken in the shelter of the house, and I took a couple of hours of campfire comfort before turning in. I slept unharassed by wind, and when I awoke, the morning star was above the eastern divide, beaming on me like a promise for the day. That morning, however, proved one of the worst in the way of heat that I ever experienced. There was something positively blasting in the air, a deadly quality as though all oxygen were withdrawn. The light itself was a sickly whitish glare. I should think this sort of morning must forebode vast eruptions, such as of Montpellier and the Soufriere. I breakfasted, packed, and then changed my mind and declared to Cahuilla that we'd be hanged if we would move so long as that state of things lasted. So I off-saddled and lay all morning with canteen at hand, watching ominous clouds pile higher and higher over San Jacinto, then spread north and south over San Gregorio and Santa Rosa. A storm was certainly coming, one of those sudden violent bursts that fall on this region at long intervals in summer, brewed almost in an hour in the furnace of the desert sky. A hundred yards in front of me was a palm that had lately been struck by lightning and was now a ghastly headless stick, like a skeleton finger pointing at its murderer the sky. At Seven Palms I had seen others like it, carrying scars that told the story. Being the only object of height on the desert, the palms are naturally marked for attack. The first boom of thunder seemed to be a warning, but I could not bring myself to move. By noon a little freshness crept into the air, and I gathered energy to eat my cheese and hardtack and make a start. We were now at the back of the great sand hills, and I turned eastward toward where a long gallery opened between them and the higher San Bernardino extension ridge. The storm still held off us, and seemed to be pouring its wrath wholly on the western highlands, a thing that often occurs, 
resulting in those sudden floods of water from apparently dry canyons that are so dreaded by desert men when the clouds extend in summer over the open desert rain may often be seen falling yet never a drop reach the earth all being evaporated while passing through the heated air i knew of a settler who had an outlying holding in the direction i was taking and presently came in sight of his homestead where i hoped to camp for the night and replenish my canteens for the long stretch that would come before i could reach the next water it was mere luck that my hope was realized i had taken for granted that i should find a well at the place but it was a rash expectation like others hereabout this devoted settler brings his water in barrels from miles away and had he not been at home we must have turned back to our last camp as it was we received a hearty welcome from man and wife and were made as free of their precious water barrel as though it could be replenished by a word i was even invited to supper and phonograph i can never get over a sense of the marvelous with regard to this invention i don't mean the thing itself it is the improbable places where one finds it that staggers me the contrast of this appendage of artificialized life with surroundings often the most primeval canned beef we look for everywhere and find it a commonplace at lhasa or the pole but canned music sounds wild on these terms yet it is pretty sure to accompany the other probably the llama is already tired of the latest raucotrola and only refrains from passing it on to the monks of Ketchenjunga, lest it might seem odd to send anything so old-fashioned. I never saw so spectacular a thunderstorm as the one that broke on the peak of San Jacinto that evening. By sundown, the clouds had gathered their total forces. Sulfurous and terrific, they piled almost to the zenith, until it seemed that when the stroke fell, it must crush the mountain out of being. There was the usual pause. Then Jove gave the signal. A spear of lightning shot through the murk, and the battle was joined. By the incessant flash and glitter, we could see what seemed to be a perpendicular shaft of solid water falling from the black vortex of the clouds upon the head of the mountain. It was as if a volcano had opened, and that dark column was spouting upward from a huge crater and spreading mushroom-wise into the death-dispensing clouds. It was quickly over. Indeed, it could not last long at that rate. Then, after that concert of the Thunderer's Best, my host turned on dim golden slippers as more suited to our capacity. The storm had done its work, and the morning came clear and, by comparison, cool. I left my hospitable friends early, and riding southeast was soon well into the long pass. A remarkable regularity of slope, as well as of level, is one of the desert's common characteristics, and one that contributes greatly to that sense of austerity which is its universal effect on the mind. There is seldom any modulation between mountain and plain. Rock plunges into sand with startling abruptness, or where some canyon debouches the rock wall will meet at a sharp angle a bajada that may run for miles in even grade at a slant of from five to twelve degrees, and the slender angle where it joins the dead level will even then be clearly marked. Nature's love of the curve is abandoned here. She works with T-square and miter box instead of with the free hand that rules elsewhere. Footnote 
bajada. This Spanish word, signifying a long downward slope or apron, is one of those useful terms that California has kept alive from the former regime. Like Mesa, it fills a real need in briefly naming a characteristic element in Western physical geography. Hardly will one find a desert landscape in which the Bajada is not a feature. End of footnote. For mile on mile, we marched up this roof-like slope over a surface, mainly gravelly, but sprinkled with boulders and varied with river-like stretches of unmixed sand where washes came down from the northern mountains. Cactus, Encelia, and Creosote rang the changes on Creosote, Encelia, and Cactus, and animal life was at a minimum. In several hours I saw but three birds, all cactus wrens, though I heard perhaps as many more talking plaintively, it seemed to me, of the loneliness of this post-nesting season. Even lizards were few, and a red racer was the only member of the serpent tribe to enliven the way, nor he for long, for these fellows are like the ghost in Hamlet. One can barely say, "'Tis here, tis here, when tis gone." At last we came to the divide and could view the other side of the roof. The downward slope was as smooth as the one we had climbed, but plainly much longer. On the north still ran the brick-like wall of mountain. On the south, a jumble of sand hills and gullies, most Arabian in look and ahead mountains on mountains, drab in near distance, purple and farther, with blues and ever paler tone as the range receded beyond range. In the flickering heat they seemed as if painted on canvas that wavered in the wind. This indeed is a common feeling in viewing a desert landscape. In the intense light, so much stronger than normal, all seems visionary. The very ground underfoot lacked solidity with its pale lilac shadows. Of all those thin spiritual hues that make the color charm of the desert, and that painters find so baffling, lilac is the prevailing note. It is the most ethereal of tints, hardly to be termed color, and seeming more of the mind than of the eye. Yet, once realized, one finds it universal. Between you and the gray boulder three feet away, you half seal, half feel a veil of lilac light and the distance is suffused with it in varying degrees. Overlying the reds and browns of the mountain walls, it makes its delicate presence felt, and covers the crudest facts of geology with a film of fancy, a touch almost a fairy. Desert shadows fall in the same high tone. There is nothing of darkness in them, no weight, no sense of dimness, but always that aerial tint of lilac, infinitely thin and refined. Over wastes of sand, aching and throbbing with light, one catches the same faint hue, lilac, always lilac. Canyons opened here and there into the hills on my right, and in some of them I thought I caught a hint of palms. A prospector who includes this route in his wanderings had warned me against being misled by these, but as a group of palms was to be my landmark, these appearances tended to doubtfulness and kept me a trifle uneasy. I had a fair idea, though, of where I was making for, so kept on hour after hour, alternately riding or leading my horse, but always in a little question whether I had not passed my point. Awkward, if so, on Kawea's account, 
for there was no prospect of forage or water for him except by our striking the one right place in this maze of possibilities the heat was severe though short of yesterday's intolerable degree it was about noon when i saw a dark spot miles ahead which i guessed to signify my palms by two o'clock we were there and found that the palms grew at the head of a long canyon that should open on desert level it was thousand palm canyon the place i wanted from under the palms a feeble stream trickled away its margin white with alkali but water is water and an absolute requisite there were scraps of fair pasturage too making it for the desert a desirable camp it was good to see kawea go to work at the juicy tules and water grass and it stimulated my own appetite jaded by hours of heat i brewed some flat spiritless tea made a scratch meal and then lay in palmy shade watching kawea's ribs fill out and enjoying a kind of lotus eater's ease the temperature was just at century point by my little thermometer and the whole place was kept on echo with drowsy coo of doves and cautious whistle of quail smaller birds formed little bathing parties of sixes and sevens turning on the shower baths with what seemed criminal extravagance at sunset i wandered half a mile down the canyon the drab mountains changed suddenly to rose then crimson then furnace red it is fortunate that these transformations come at the hour when one's spirits are rising in prospect of the coolness of the approaching night otherwise they might be wasted meeting a listless heat-burdened mood incapable of enthusiasm or even interest the great twin mountains were hidden from me here but the san bernardino spur was close enough for its four thousand feet to show to advantage but though these drought cursed mountains are admirable in color one's pleasure in them is limited since for mountains to be merely admirable is almost for them to be failures the canyons yonder bathed in indescribable hues have no enticement for the imagination for one knows that no streams are there no trees no birds no ferny pools nor spouting cascades only uncouth boulders scant unfriendly shrubs threatening reptiles snarling wildcat and slinking coyote such mountains never reach one's love the night was warm though a breeze rattled the palm fans over my bed once i was aroused by the approach of some large animal and was barely in time to beat off a couple of mules that were making for my saddlebags. There is some instinct in these brutes that guides them unerringly for miles on any errand of depredation, yet drives them away from where their presence is desired. Toward morning, raising myself on elbow for a drink from the canteen, which on the desert one keeps at one's bolster as King Saul kept his cruise of water, I noticed the odd appearance of a star that was just rising in the east. It grew quickly to a little horn, and in a few moments announced itself as the moon, nearly at her monthly finale. By the time she had climbed to where her light fell among the ribbons of the palms, it was dawn. And I rose promptly in order to get breakfast before my unwelcome comrade, the sun, arrived to keep me company for the day. End of chapter 7